0: So we're going to jump in uh, this morning. I've been preaching a series called Focus. Um, obviously, what we're aiming for is is a kingdom-minded focus. That's something we've been going after for a while. I talked a little bit last week about how uh, focus is a very interesting concept, in the fact that you can only focus on one thing at a time. Um, you know, the the uh, there's a lie that says that you can multitask. We've heard that that used to be kind of a common practice and common understanding, but it turns out in all the studies they've done, there's really no such thing as as uh, As multitasking, like the moment you multitask when your tension comes off of something and you have to put it back on the same thing or a new thing, you lose focus for a period of time and so they've done studies over the years and found that it's it's actually not worth it to try to do a bunch of things at once it 's better to focus blocks of time on things so if you are into uh, if you're especially if you're working from home or if you if you've tried the whole multitasking thing uh, it, there's just something amazing about setting blocks of time and giving it your focus and giving your attention because there's something that happens in that. And so you, once you take your focus off of something and put it on something else, again, that's just the kind of the nature of focus in general. Um, the point being really that you can't focus on two things at once. So we've talked a, a little bit about what's going on in our world with the COVID virus, with the, you know, with the protests and the riots and all the things that are happening. And it, and it just feels like in a, in a big way, there's a lot of unrest, right? I mean, we feel um, Scripture speaks of, of uh, the Sabbath rest. It talks about Jesus actually being the Sabbath rest, that we come into Christ, that we come into rest. And so when the, when the storm is raging around, if you remember the story with Jesus on the boat, when the storm is raging, the disciples are freaking out because of the storm. Jesus had invited them into the boat. So, in, in, so if you put that into context, you know, how, what that looks like and how it relates to our life, Jesus had invited them on the journey. Right? So, so he had given them direction. They were with him, even though they couldn't sense him or feel him or have you know, contact with him. So if you think in many ways, him sleeping on the boat is kind of a picture sometimes of how we feel when, life, when we're doing life and we're trying to follow Christ like Jesus. Don't you even care? You know, that was one of their phrases. Don't you even co- care that we're in a storm? And you know, we know the story. Jesus stands up and he, and he stills the storm. So, so part of the ch- challenge we forget, you know, that that um, Jesus also invited Peter out onto the water. And we talked a little bit about this last week as well. And as long as, as long as Peter's eyes were on Jesus, he didn't sink in the water. So the waves were still coming, um, you know. He's walking on water, and I know that messes with some people who have, you know, have no context or uh, so no context or concept of a supernatural. If you live in a box where you don't believe in the supernatural, um, at some point you're going to get surprised whether right. than this life or the next, at some point you're going to get surprised. That's all I have to say about that. So, so the whole, whole picture is, as long as your eyes are on Christ, and we've been talking about this, as long as your eyes are on him, the storm can rage all around you. You can walk supernaturally. The moment you take your eyes off of him, you begin to sink. The moment you forget that Jesus is the one who invited you into the journey, then you go from rest to unrest, so in, And there's so many scriptures where Jesus said, I read this I think last week, he says, do not worry, don't do it. Well, a couple of things about that. One, God would never tell you to do something you can't do, right, because that's pretty unfair, wouldn't you say? So if he says don't worry, that means you can be in a place where you don't worry. He, he, he talked about emotion and, and, and you know, uh, self. We talk about self-discipline, right? Um, and and that there, it's actually a fruit of the, of the Spirit that God wants to bring into our lives that says you can actually control your emotions and not let your emotions control you. And I know that because another scripture says, hey, you can be angry but don't sin. So anybody ever felt that? You know, like you get angry and so one of the lies that we hear is having an emotion is the same thing as sin. And that's not true at all. Being tempted is not the same thing as sin right? It's when you're tempted and you fall into it, that's when you miss the mark. And so God goes after that. So the picture is right now in our world, there's tons of unrest. It's not the first time there's been unrest, and I promise you it won't be the last time that there'll be unrest. So we are on this journey, and and it's helpful to remember that Jesus has invited you into the journey. He asked you to get on his boat, right? You didn't ask him. If you asked him to get on your boat, you obviously don't understand lordship. You with me? So Jesus asked you to get on his boat. He has invited you into his journey. And as long as you stay with him, as long as you keep your eyes on him, this is the the context of what we're talking about in focus, then you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. So at, at the end of the day, like Karen said, we serve the purposes. David said we serve the purposes of God in our lifetime, and then we lay down and died. (laughs) right so there's whether you die or whether jesus comes back and you're lifted up in the air and and that happens and you're part of that generation at some point every single one of us has that moment where this is the end and this is the beginning of something supernaturally forever right and so we we capture that but again we walk in a a world that's full of unrest so i want to read a scripture and just comment on this scripture this is found in mark chapter 12 and this is a story where Jesus, um, we miss so much sometimes when we're reading Scripture because we read it so fast, right? It's really helpful to kind of slow down and, and really get a lot out of Scripture. So it takes time to study the Bible. It takes time to learn the context of Scripture. But those things are so helpful because there's, a promise, there's a wealth of information in just the smallest of Scriptures. And so Mark chapter 12, verse 13 begins like this. Um, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. And so um, these two people, we're going to talk about them in just a second, but it's very interesting that these two fellows are not often, these two groups are not often bedfellows, okay? The Pharisees and the Herodians, um, most Herodians were Sadducees, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were, were always at odds. And I'm going to talk about the reasons why in just a second. But they joined forces, right, to try to catch Jesus in a trap. Because they, in, in their selfish ambition, both groups had an agenda that happened to coincide against Christ. And so we'll talk about that in just a second as well. So verse 14 says, They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Um, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right? So here's the question they throw at it. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? So what they're trying to do is they're trying to catch Jesus in, 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 in a scenario that he can't get out of. They're trying to trap him. And, and in times of unrest, one of the things that you'll find, I don't know if you felt this as we've been kind of going through some of the things that are happened, but there's always tension between competing worldviews, competing groups, competing agendas, right? But oftentimes, all of those competing agendas and competing groups are combining their forces together to get your attention off of Jesus. So it's interesting how you can put these bedfellows, people that seemingly would never cooperate, these groups that would seemingly never cooperate, um, worldviews that would seemingly never cooperate, will come together to take your attention off of God. It's fascinating. There's a, there's a. a I remember studying at Bible college. This is. What, 25, 30 years ago almost now? I remember studying in Bible, Bible college what's called postmodernism. Studied it somewhat in school, but it was just coming on. And postmodernism, modernism is what most of the, us older people grew up in, in the sense that, uh, you know, it's science, um, you know, there were certain diseases that were cured, the well, Second World War was won, and so, you know, man's smarts, you know, we're going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Um, we're gonna figure things out, everything's gonna work, our systems are working, we have good a good nation, and so there's this big beautiful thing called modernism that said that we're gonna we're gonna be fine because we're gonna take care of ourselves, right? We got this. And then the post postmodernists come along and I'm I won't get into the details of it, but postmodernists coming along and Recognize that a bunch of that stuff wasn't working, right? A lot of the philosophies that we had were not working, and they're like, and so they push back against it. So one of the aspects of postmodernism is that they they don't believe in a grand narrative. Like modernism is a grand narrative. Science is gonna is gonna solve all of our problems. You know, intelligence. You know, we can all get along. All these society, it's gonna solve our all of our problems. And the postmodernists come along and said, there's there's no such thing as a grand narrative. Well, Christianity is a grand narrative. Right, So postmodernism, by its very definition, is against Christianity, against your walk with God. And it's the culture that most of the universities in our country right now in the Western world have bought into. So if you're not careful, as these guys go off to school, some of them are going to college, some of them finish, finish uh, some, uh, a degree, as we go into the educational system, the educational system has an agenda. Be really careful of people who say they have no agenda. Those are the most dangerous people everywhere because they have an agenda and they don't want you to know what the agenda is. Right? So keep that in mind. I have an agenda this morning. If you don't think I have an agenda, let's have coffee. I'll tell you all about my agenda. It's not secret at all. Right? That's what preaching is about. It's proclaiming something. And so, so postmodernism is now what's really interesting is joining with what's called neo-Marxism, new, the new Marxism. And what's fascinating about that is neo-Marxism is just a new version of communism and socialism and all the other isms that have risen up and typically killed tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people, right? So it was a grand narrative that said, "Hey, the bourgeoisie—you know, the, all, all the people who are intelligent and smart and running society—they're stealing, and especially the people from the cities are stealing from the farmers and the and the peasants and the people who are just working hard." And so it's the the oppressed and the oppressor that's pitted against each other, right, in this philosophy. But Marxism is a grand narrative. Now, why am I telling you all this? Like, go study this if you want to look into this. It's fascinating because a lot of what's going on our political agenda and everything that's happened are tied to these worldviews. Here's the fascinating thing about that Neo Marxism and postmodernism are diametrically opposed to one another because one is a grand narrative, the other doesn't believe grand narratives exist. And they are combining together in our world to push back against the purposes of God. So, bedfellows, Pharisees and Sadducees getting together. And you see this on a regular basis. Let me go on. Verse 15 says, should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Isn't that interesting? He knew, hypocrisy is an interesting word. The root version of it is acting. They had an agenda, but they were acting like they had a a different agenda. Because remember, they came to him and said, Lord, we know you're pretty amazing, and you 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 don't respect anybody, but secretly what we're trying to do is trap you into something trying to get you to say something that's going to get you into trouble, take your influence away, pitch you against one group or the other, right? So that's what's going on. He says, should we pay or shouldn't we? Um, But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he said. And then he says this, bring me a denarius, a coin, right, a Roman coin, and let me look at it. So they brought the coin, and he asked them, whose image is this? So he holds the coin up. And I'm going to show you the coin in just a second. But he holds the coin up and he says, whose image is this? And this is what they said. They said, that's Caesar's. Now, there's a lot of information in that coin. We're going to talk about it in just a second. But the image on the, on the coin was Caesar. Verse 17, this is what he says. Jesus said to them, find them. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. There's so much. Go study this. There's so much. There's this, there's this thing um, about rabbis the way rabbis would answer questions is often would pose another question in its place, and typically those rabbis would use Scripture when they posed the question, right? So they would speak from the authority of Scripture based on whatever the question was. They wouldn't answer the question. They would ask another question that in the asking of that question and you answering it actually answers the question that you ask. <laughs> it's like... Can we just say what we mean? Would that be okay? right? <laughs> it seems seems like it would be more helpful. But this was a typical, um, you know, a typical way rabbis worked, especially when people would ask in public. So let me just give you some context because context is super helpful. So just the historical com- context. So the the coin right was based on on it was it was used to pay taxes in, in, to Rome, and so this this tax. That was levied. If you remember uh, Caesar Augustus, you know, and when Jesus was born in the in the Christmas story and the narrative, that they they're called in a census to go back to their places uh, uh, where they grew up, where they were born, and and to let everybody know, you know, here's how many people were my family, how many kids, you know, dependents, the whole thing. We do something very similar today in our census. We just we just so about six A.D. They they imp- implemented Rome implemented a, um, a tax against all of the people in in that area, right? And so, again, by 17 AD, there's a Roman historian named Tacitus, and this is what he said after this was implemented in 6 AD and 17 AD, this is what he wrote. He says, the provinces too, talking of Syria and Judea, exhausted by their burdens. So they were being taxed to the point Where it was burdensome, and they said this. You ever feel that? You ever everybody, you know, all the young people are socialists until they get their first paycheck and see what how much the government takes out of it. They're like, hold up, right? (laughs) Let's let's have some conversation about it. All of a sudden we get political when you see how much money's missing, right? So, (laughs) So it it says, uh the provinces too. This is what the historian Tacitus wrote, the Roman historian, of Syria and Judea, exhausted by their burdens, implored a reduction of tribute. They said, Please. Can you at least, don't take it away, but can you at least lower the taxes? You're killing us. We can't make a living, right? And so it was so bad that, that there were several, um, several revolts that, that occurred over the next several years. Um, and, they, and the Romans had to fight these this tax revolts, right? The, they rise up and they would attack the Romans and then run away and hide. And they fought this for decades and decades, all the way through the life of Jesus, So so that's the picture of what's going on historically in the context. And in the scriptural context, when Jesus is asked this question, he had just um, come from his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, okay? And throngs of people came around him and and declared that he was the king. So now you've you've got, you know, this rabbi who comes into the city, um, and and all the people are laying palm leaves out. I mean, you guys, we just came through Easter, you know the story. And so they're declaring that Jesus is the king. So that's creating some a bit of a problem for the Romans who look at this and go, "Okay, there's a good chance that that, uh, that unrest is coming to a level that we can't we can't fight it." And as, as you see later on, if you study his, history later on, it, that's exactly what happened. But the scriptural context, all three of the synoptic gospels, the, the synoptic gospels are the gospels that agree with one another, that kind of kind of run the timeline of Jesus in a similar fashion. Uh, John is a little bit different; he took a, uh, took a different. Uh, when he wrote his gospel, but the the three synoptic gospels place, again, the episode right about this time. And this is what was really interesting. It was close to the time of Passover. Passover, as you know, commemorated God's deliverance of his people from Egypt, right? So they came out of oppression, and now if you remember, this is what's going on. They're celebrating Passover. In the meantime, Rome is oppressing them. So they're celebrating coming out from underneath one oppressor, Constantly in mind of another oppressor, right? So, the other thing is that, that they celebrated, that Passover celebrated, was a divine restoration to the land of Israel. Again, it's this, it, if you remember, now this land that God had given them as their inheritance was now occupied by the Romans. So, thinking about this unrest, you've got political unrest, you've got religious unrest, it's, it's a hotbed of unrest. You think it's bad here and now, if you can really capture the context of what was going on in Jesus' time, it makes, when you see the things, the questions that they would ask Jesus, the manipulation from the Pharisees and the questions that they would try to catch him publicly in, you would see that what they were trying to do is create a a way to to stop the voice of Christ from existing at all. Remember, the, the devil did the same thing when Jesus was born, right? He goes and he kills all the babies. Right? He uses men to, to do evil things, to destroy babies, toddlers, to kill them all in hopes of killing the Messiah before the Messiah gained influence. And so the same thing, we have worldviews that are competing. We have, we have uh, the, the desire for things in our world. Stuff captures all these things trying to capture our attention. Why? Why is that happening? Why is the enemy so against just letting Jesus talk? Because Jesus is diametrically opposed to everything in the world, right? And we're going to get to that in just a second. He loves his people and he sees his people have been taken into bondage and his desire is to bring us out of that bondage into freedom. And so often we as the church fight Jesus on a regular basis to go back into bondage. I'm amazed that, that we do this. I'm amazed especially when I do it, right? Like when you do it, I understand, right? Right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Because other people, like, yeah, those, you know, they're not me. Right? I know things. And then you fall into it and you go, oh, wait, maybe there's something going on here that I need to pay attention to. So there's this constant draw from the world to try to capture our attention. So that's the scriptural context. I mentioned that there are two people involved in this, the Herodians. This was a political party of the king of Galilee. Herod was the man that they were kind of gathered around. They supported Rome. Uh, they, they actually were always compromising politically to stay in power. That was something that they were always trying to do, and they were, were for the most part, the, the political power that was in charge of the, of the surrounding area. And then the Pharisees, of course, um, before I get to the Pharisees, the, Sad, the Sadducees, in this question that's being asked, the Herodians are supporting and hoping Jesus would say, pay tribute to Caesar, right? Because that's their agenda. Their agenda is the state... Their agenda is politics. Their agenda is keeping power at any cost. That's their agenda. So, so they're all for Jesus saying, "Let's pay," you know, "Let's, let's, let's pay taxes." And then the Pharisees are this opposite group of people who've now come and joined together with the Rodians. And the word Pharisee literally means "separated one," but not in a good way, <laughs> right? Like separated, like um, you guys are peons, and you know, and I'm I'm the bomb. Like I I I follow the law. You don't, of course, because you know I'm basically I'm better than you. That's where that whole you know, that's why we use that term all the time. To is it's it's never a good term, right? When you call somebody a Pharisee, it's not like you know we're we're smiling at them. And we say maybe we are, but it's because we're southern and we're you know they're going to realize they got insulted when they got home. You know what I'm saying? So the Pharisees again were very strict. They were incredibly religious. At at, at, at one point, there was probably no more than six thousand Pharisees in all of Jerusalem. At any one time. And the reason why is because the religion was so strict, nobody could do it. (laughs) But some people could, right? And what was interesting is when they would, there was something about the fact that they could that they often made you feel bad about the fact that you couldn't. You ever notice that? Like, religion's a really evil thing. I don't know if you... That sounds funny coming from a pastor. But that's because religion and Christianity are not often the same thing. Right? Right? So so what's the difference? I mean, there's lots of things that we we go after, but the the Pharisees were organized around obeying the law. And so remember uh, the people of Israel, I've said this many, many times, when you go back and read, when Moses comes and he declares the law and he reads the law to the whole people, all of Israel said, we will do everything in the book, right? Everything that's written, we'll do it. So that's an arrogant thing to say. Their heart was there, which is probably what prompted them to say it. But were they really going to? And we know they weren't because with the law came the sacrifices. Why? Because when you didn't fulfill the law, a sacrifice was needed. So the whole intention, we've talked about this a million times, the whole intention of the law was to show you you couldn't follow the law. The whole point of it was to show you that it's impossible. But the Pharisees said you could. The only problem was that they would follow the law on the outside, and this is what Jesus would go after them about, but internally they were sick and they were broken and they were depraved. So outwardly they're doing well, inwardly they're broken. Right? Jesus said it like this. He said, you know, on the outside you're, you look like, a, you're, you're like graves. On the outside it's beautiful, it's well taken care of, manicured lawns, perfect stones, it, it's, it's wonderful. But inside or underneath it, you're, it's, dead, it, it's full of death and decay. And so the Pharisees, this was the Pharisees, they were strict literalists, like I said. They, they added to the law. So let me give you an example of what the Pharisees would do. If, if the Sabbath said, you know, at sundown, you have to stop doing whatever it was you're doing for the Sabbath. You know, if you were working, you can't work anymore. And then, uh, uh, you know, when, it, when the Sabbath was over, immediately you could pick back up and work. The Pharisees had written into the law extra aspects of it to keep you, from actually breaking the law, let's back that up a few hours, right? So you start before the Sabbath. God actually tells you to start. And then you stop after God says you can start back up again. Why? Because it says you can't handle what God's saying. You can't do it. So we're going to help you. And this is what religion does. Religion doesn't want you to have a relationship with Jesus yourself. They want to stand in the gap for you. Here's what's so sad. You think, well, that's, I know that, that you see that's in some religions and even Christianity. In some aspects of Christianity, you see priests who stand before the people and they stand in place of the people, right? But we don't do that if we're, you know, if, if we're not Roman Catholic. You know, we're Protestant. We don't do that. But yes, we do. So often, we let the church tell us what to do. We listen to what the pastor says over our own good sense, Right? The pastor stands up and he says something and something inside your heart says, I think that's a load of malarkey. You know what? It's probably a load of malarkey. Right? Because God gave you a brain, he gave you a spirit, and there's a reason why people get in these cults and we all say, how in the world did they end up like that? Well, they didn't start there, right? They started with that—that something inside of them, the voice of God saying, that's, too, that's not me. Maybe even the guy means well. Maybe I don't, you know, say to him, "Well, he's he's being super ambitious and selfish." Maybe he just means well. It doesn't matter how, how well you mean if you take people away from God and you try to be the Messiah for them. It's just not helpful. So these were this was this was the state. This was you know the Herodians were the state. They're the government. They're politics. They're other influences. And then you've got religion. And neither one of them were in agreement with Christ. Fascinating, right? So goes, this aspect of it goes on. And so they're, they're the ones, these Pharisees were the ones who were constantly at odds with Jesus. Why? There's two main reasons why. And this is helpful as you study, especially the New Testament. First of all, he was not a graduate of any of their rabbinical schools. He didn't have the qualifications to have authority. Right? So that's a big deal. So you see that now. So if you don't go to the right school, you know, if you don't ha- hang with the right people, if you don't live in the right neighborhood, if, even in church world, if you're not part of the leadership team, you know, if, you're not, if, you're, if you're not on the in crowd, whatever that looks like, all this stuff comes back to this, exactly what, the, what the, uh, these guys said. If you're not part of our group, then you can't possibly be, have any good thing to tell me. And so they shut themselves off to their own set of teachings, right, that never listens to anybody else and never entertains entertains the opportunity or or the possibility that you could actually be wrong. I remember the first time I really began to understand grace, I, I understood grace enough to get saved, right? You can't get saved without understanding that aspect of grace. But very quickly after I understood grace and I began to live as a Pharisee, (laughs) right? I'm like, okay, now I know what to do, and I'm writing a few extra laws. I know God didn't say that, but if I'm going to do it right, this is what I'm going to have to do, right? You know, I'm going to look down on you that you can't follow the rules like I can follow the rules, so I'm going to look down on you. See this in, in the prodigal son and his older brother, right? It's just a constant scenario that you see Jesus going after. You don't fit into the crowd, you can't possibly hear the right thing. And and yet Jesus says, I can talk to you. I can be your teacher. I can use other people to grow you and disciple you, and that's wonderful. But at some point, you have to take responsibility as a believer for your own vital walk with the Lord. You have to do that. You have to read your own Bible. There's a reason why God made sure you still have it available to you. Read it. There's a reason why you should pray, engage, and connect with the Lord because he's so He's so about relating and being with you and talking to you. He doesn't need me to do that. He will use me as a pastor to speak into your life and to equip you and do a bunch of things. But at the end of the day, even the good things that I do bring are not going to be helpful if you don't connect those to the Lord and say they're helpful for you. Does that make sense? So the other thing that the Pharisees would do, he didn't like, is because he, they didn't like Jesus, is because he attacked their rules and their regulations. So that when, when the Pharisees, by the time it was all said and done, the Pharisees had, had built over 50 volumes of extra information that you had to follow along with the law. So think about that for a second. Jesus said one thing, he said one thing that he hated about the Pharisees, he said that they would put all this weight on you, right, to carry, and they wouldn't even lift, lift off of it with their little finger. In other words, they would not even for a little bit Take away the pressure of what the law was trying to say you had to do. And then Jesus comes along and he brings grace. Right? He comes along and he fights the, the worldview systems, the government, all the any anybody who has selfish ambition, Jesus went after it, right? Whether it was the state, the government, the worldview, business, it didn't matter what it was, any selfish ambition, Jesus went after it. And especially in religion. He went after it. Something to understand as we kind of get ready to wrap this up. So back to the story. This is verse sixteen. They brought the coin, and Jesus asked them, "Whose image is this, and whose inscriptions?" "Caesar's," they replied. Then Jesus said to them, "Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and God, what is God." So I want to show you the picture. This is a picture of a denarius coin. This is a this is a Roman coin that was uh, it was. Uh, created in Lyon, France, I think is how you pronounce it. Anyway, that's where they, they minted this coin. So there were a few gold ones, but this was a silver one. It was about four grams. It wasn't very big, um, but it was roughly worth, in that time, a day's wages, okay? A common labor, a day's wages. So it wasn't very expensive. But most Jews had nothing to do with this coin, right? Because a couple reasons. One, it was from a press, an oppressing government. And two, notice the one, especially the one with the picture of the man, on the left hand side, as you look at that, that that coin, it's showing the image of Caesar. Now, here's what's really interesting. Circumscribed around this, I'm just going to translate it for you. This is what it says: Tiberius Caesar, worshipful son of the God Augustus. So this coin, written on the coin, says the Son of God. That's interesting, right? The flip side of that, the other side of that coin is a picture of. Pax, or the goddess of peace, Romans called her Pax. And circumscribe, circumscribed around her were the words meaning high priest. So just, you know, when he, when he said, show me the coin, there was way more information in this coin than just the concept about whether you should pay taxes or not. Because that's what we reduce it to, right? Isn't it? We reduce that scripture as well. Jesus saying, hey, you know, give to the government, what's the government's do? And give to God what's, and, and move on, right? And it's almost as if they're equal. But Jesus' whole point in this was to point out the fact that there were two competing options for you. One is saying, I'm God, and I'm the high priest, right, of peace, of all things, right? I'm going to take care of you. This is what the, the Romans said. I'm going to take care of you. I will supply all your needs according to my riches in Rome, right? (laughs) So so someone is offering to be your God. Someone is wanting to be your idol. Whether Whether that's the government, like you see in this scenario, or religion, or the church, or any other option outside of Jesus. Someone is competing for your attention. What Jesus is trying to show is that you can't have two gods, right? He's literally said this in another place, and he spoke about money. And I imagine this is what came to mind when he was saying that. You can't serve money and God. What is money? Money is, a, money is a false god that says, I will give you security. I, I don't, I've been poor, and now I'm not. <laughs> right? Let me tell you, I would much rather be the not poor. I don't know about you, but I choose not poor if I get an option, right? There are some good reasons about that, but let me tell you what money promised me along the way. Money promised me, if you get enough of me, I will take care of you. You know what I discovered in that process? you can never get enough to make you happy. Whatever is promised outside of the one who created you, the one who put his handprint in you, like you, like you would in these newfangled beds, you push your hand down in, you pull your hand away, and it leaves that imprint, that's a permanent imprint on who you are, who you were made to be, that God pressed inside of you, and nothing else can fill that gap. Nothing not sex, not drugs, not even rock and roll can fill, I know, I know, it's surprising, can fill that gap. You You have to realize this. And what's so terrible so often is you get to the place where you've tried all those things and it doesn't fulfill you But then what what the enemy does is he accuses the brethren, right? So first he tempts you into all this. This is his plan. He tempts you into choosing anything but God. And by the time you've invested everything that you are into anything but, but God and you find that it leaves you wanting, then he places guilt on you and says you don't deserve what God was trying to give you all along. It's insidious. It's insidious no matter whether it's the government that does it, whether it's politics that does it whether it's a worldview, whether it's the promise of riches, or whatever it might be, none of those things are going to fulfill you. And this is what Jesus was trying to say. so ironic. One of the most ironic passages in Scripture is this picture of the Son of God and the High Priest of Peace holding a tiny silver coin of a king who claims to be the Son of God and the High Priest of Peace. One of the most ironic Scriptures in all of, all of the Bible. So the Hebrew tradition, we know this, everything belonged to God. I won't get into that. But the physical land, Leviticus says it this way, the land of Israel shall not be sold in perpetuity. For the, that's a legal term. If you're questioning that, you can talk to Alan. He'll help you. <laughs> perpetuity, for the land is mine. This is what God says, the land is mine, and you, the Israelites, or my people, are but aliens who have become my tenants. He, he said, we're searching for a city, another place, we're searching for a city whose builder and maker and architect is God. We're searching, we're, that's built inside of us to search for something. In all of the unrest, right, COVID-19 comes along and says, whatever you thought of, of, of security and peace, you were wrong. There's an invisible enemy that can come and take you out before you even know what happened. And it, and it has. And people who had placed their security Maybe they were just mindless and thought, I'm going to live forever because that's what we all think, right? Because it's true. (laughs) You're going to live forever somewhere, right? But we think we're going to live in this world together. We fool ourselves or live in this world forever. We fool ourselves into believing that. And this virus comes along. God didn't send it, by the way. People say, oh, you know, the Lord sent this. No, he did not. But he will make use of what the enemy tries to do to destroy you. He does this on a regular basis. So what do you get out of that? Turns out, um, that you're a breath away from heaven or hell, you pick. You're a breath away. The Bible says it this way, your life is like a vapor. It just means that, you know, you've seen this fog comes up and then the sun comes and burns it away and you're like, I, 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 it seemed like the fog was there and then it's gone. Mist or vapor, it's there and then it's gone. And the older I get, the more I realize that's true. So I want to challenge some of the young people as you go into your career, as you go into your life, What you build your foundation on now matters. Your peace, what you build your peace on matters. This whole thing with the riots and and the protests that are going on. Injustice exists in our world. Don't think it doesn't. Anybody that says there is no injustice, there's no racism, you just have not been paying attention, obviously. You live in a bubble. Right? But if you're not careful, what happens is the spirit of this world wants to give you a cause, to give your life away for, that is not ultimately connected to Jesus. So, injustice, God is against injustice, we know that. You read scripture, the Bible says that God, by his very nature, is justice. One scripture says, we as the people of God should dance upon injustice. We should party against injustice if you can imagine that, right? So there's this picture that God has that he wants, us to give, he wants to give us the real thing, not a fake. He doesn't want to give us a coin with the image of something and a promise of something that won't actually fulfill. He wants to give us the real thing. So let me wrap it up with this. There's a saying that says, this world is not our home. You've heard this, it's in a lot of Christian songs. But we should qualify that to say that this world as it now is, is not our home. We should also add this world as it will be, delivered from the curse, will be our home. The Bible says that there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. What does that look like? It, it talks about Jesus, again, in Christmas story, we hear this, that Jesus, that, that, that the government sits upon his shoulders. What is that? It, that the government, ne, there's nothing negative about government. There's, some, there's only negative about um, government that is not from God, Right? Good men, you can pick any kind of government style that you want. And a a person who loves God, if if it was a king before democracy existed, that king, and you see this throughout Scripture, that, uh, that king who loved God, the people rejoiced and the people flourished under that king. Why? Because he wasn't full of selfish ambition. His heart was, he recognized that in government, and we see this, that government has been delegated authority. You see this where the Bible says that the government doesn't hold a sword for nothing. There's a reason the government exists. It's not all-encompassing, and there's different ways you can look at the government, and that's part of your, your journey. Go for it. But the the idea behind it is that God gives authority, whether that's parents, whether that's leaders in churches, whether that's the government, whether that's business, whether that's you having a lot of money, whatever you've been given, some people call it privilege. You can call it whatever you want. Authority is privilege, right? We get that. But what was authority given for? And this is what Paul said when he wrote to the church. He said, I have been given authority to build you up, never to tear you down. See, that kind of authority is in line with the kingdom of God. It's not a promise of something that won't fulfill. Why? Because it's a void of selfish ambition. The only work, only way authority is ever going to work is if you do it, if you operate in the context of God's authority ultimately. Right? We understand this. God's perfect place, play, plan is one day, this is what Ephesians 1.10 says, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. There's going to be a king Truth is, there already is a king, right? He's a benevolent king. He's a good king. He's our father, the king. The Bible says it this way in Revelations 21.3. It says, the wall of separation between God and mankind, and mankind in itself will be torn down. This is Revelations 21.3. It says, now on the new earth, the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So, the picture, what is it, this focus I've been talking about? The focus is you are a dual citizen. You have citizenship, first of all, in heaven, if you're a believer. And secondly, you have citizenship here on earth. And the idea of why you're still here is to bring what is in heaven to earth. That's what God's called you to do. If it's just about salvation, when you got saved, poof, you would have been gone. To heaven and no more suffering no more crying no more issues no more temptation no more of the things that we struggle so often against no more oppression no more religion none of those things imagine right (laughs) we all have heard the song it's beautiful except it won't work outside of the one who created it to work And so the picture is there's always an enemy who's trying to get you to focus. If you're a dual citizen, then which one do you focus on? And the answer is you cannot focus on one without letting one lead you. You You can only focus on one at a time. So the whole idea is if you build your foundation on the foundations of God, then everything you build will be godly. But if you don't, then almost nothing you build will be godly. Let me read this this last scripture. This is 1 John 2. It says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, listen to this, whether it's religion or state, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, all selfish ambition, comes not from the Father but from the world. Listen. Listen. And this is powerful. This is verse 17. The world and its desires pass away. Whatever your cause is, it's outside of God, it's going to pass away. Whatever you're giving yourself away to, that's not God, it's going to pass away. It's going to cease to exist. All the oppression that you fight, and there's nothing wrong with fighting oppression, but it's all going to cease at one point. The Bible says it this way. There's going to come a day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right? So what does that mean? It means you can bend your knee now in mercy and in grace, or you can bend your knee one day in judgment, but you will bend your knee. Everyone will. This is the message of the gospel. And the good news is you can bend your knee in mercy rather than judgment. That's the beautiful news. C.S. Lewis said this, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds we're occupied with heaven. We're called to be ambassadors. I'm not going to read that, but I'm going to, I am going to read this scripture and then I'm going to pray. This is John 4.20. It says, Whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. I'm going to read that again because that couldn't be more pertinent for the season that we're in right now. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. John was brutal with truth. Finishes with this, and he says, and he has given us this command. So he said, because of what he's done, it's possible, and then he's given us this command. Anyone who loves God, must also love their brother and sister. So my challenge, my admonition to us as a people is this. Live your life, So that you make God seen. See, the call that you and I have as Christians is not to pontificate about perfect doctrine because you're probably going to miss it somewhere. It's why we need one another. Constant revelation of who God, the more I study Scripture, I've been doing this for 30-something years, and the more I study Scripture, the more I connect with God's people, the more I recognize I have to learn. Some things are settled in my heart. But but the, the impetus behind all of that was God asked something of me in the beginning. Will you make me Lord? Do you believe that I'm good? Can you submit to my goodness? Can you trust me with your, not just with this life, but with all of eternity? Can you trust me with your family? Can you trust me with your leadership? Can you trust me with all that I'm going to give you to invest? Can you do that? Can you trust me when, the, when you're being oppressed? Can you trust me when I've given you authority, when I've given someone else authority over you? Can you trust me? In every scenario you see in Scripture, God always says, in all things, right? Not for all things. You don't praise God for, God, thank you so much that I'm getting beat down right now. It's such a joy and a pleasure. That's ridiculous. It's not what the Bible says. But it says even in everything, every challenge, everything where we've not seen, you know, whether it's sickness or oppression or whatever, and we've not seen God push down what the Bible says eventually he will do is make his enemies his footstool. We haven't seen it yet. There's still oppression. There's still injustice. There's still stuff that's missing. But the only way we're going to bring real change to this world is to stop thinking so much about this world and focus on the one that God has given us. And when we recognize that this is the reality that he's trying to bring to earth, that's where we bring the most change. So don't get caught up. Don't get caught up. in uh, My challenge is don't get caught up and react Quickly, because this is what the world does. They want to come, and they want to ask you a question, and no matter how you look at it, they'll, they'll make nice words about you. They'll say, hey, we know you're such a good pastor, Dave. We, we, you know, you guys have been doing such a good job, and somewhere in this, there's going to be a trap. I need you to take a stand on this, Dave. I need you to decide, I need you, and I need you to do it today. I don't know if you've ever been, someone's tried to sell you something, but I have one word for people to tell me that I have to make the decision right now, and the word is no. Anyone wants to force you to try to make a decision before you've thought, before you've processed, before you've recognized <clears throat> ultimately what is God trying to say it to me? What is his responsibility? Not what people are telling my, me my responsibility is, but what he's saying is my responsibility. And don't cop out. Don't say, well, you know, I'm just waiting. I'm just praying. I'm just praying. Well, how long are you going to pray? The whole idea behind praying is you're talking to God, but at some point he's supposed to talk back to you and you get an answer right so if all you're doing is praying you're not actually doing what god's called you to do so action you can't just pray there's something that has to there has to be something more why because at some point god has put you in this earth for a reason karen mentioned that he's put you in this earth in this season for a reason and here's where you know you're missing it when you see all the unrest right and all you think about is how that affects you If that's not privilege, I don't know what is. So let that hit you. Let that smack you upside the head as hard as it wants to. Because at the end of the day, if all you're thinking about, when you see all this unrest, all you're thinking about is loving yourself, and you've not moved from loving God, loving yourself, to loving your neighbor, you have missed the very reason that you exist in this earth. And so I want to challenge you, don't react. Don't let people force you. If you're not sure about where you stand on issues, don't let people force you. But also don't be passive and never make a decision about what God is asking of you. When you know what the Lord has called you to, be absolutely unapologetic and go for it with everything that's in you. And if you miss it, there's grace for you, right? But what you can't do is come to the end of your life and wish you had done something for the Lord that you didn't do because of your fear, your insecurities, or your lack of initiative. Don't let that be you. Every one of us has a part to play in this unrest that we feel. Whether this is the, the sense of a loss of security, especially with COVID-19 and coming and trying to take us out, or the unrest politically, the unrest racially, the unrest, unrest about gender, all of these are questions that need an answer But if you let the world determine what the question is, then you're never going to be able to give a godly answer without getting trapped. When people come and they say, I just need an answer for you, ask them questions. (laughs) Jesus did it. Why? Because at some point what you're trying to get to is, what is the Lord's intention in all of this? And when we find that and we give our lives away for that, we literally change the world. Amen? Amen. So focus comes. Focus on the kingdom first, what the Lord is doing, and then let that translate into what we're doing in this world. Why not you stand with me? Lord, we just say thank you. Um, God, as challenging as it can be um, in the world that we live in, Lord, the challenges that we face, God, you have called us for such a time as this. Um, Lord, it's such a powerful picture that you paint in Scripture that your intention, Lord, was never for us to be the victims. To never especially take on the mindset of a victim. Lord, but to come and allow you to speak purpose. Lord, to give an answer for what you've called us to. Lord, to bring change to the brokenness of humanity. Lord, first by finding healing and wholeness in our own lives. And Lord, then letting that change and that kingdom come in me begin to go into the world around me. So Lord, give us wisdom and insight. You said we don't have it because we ask um, and, and we're being faulty, Lord. We're, backing, we're going back and forth between ideas. Lord, we want to hear what your word is. We want to hear what your ideas are. And Lord, we want to act on them, no matter the risk, no matter what people say, no matter what selfish ambition tells me or fear or insecurity tries to say to me, Lord, I want to honor you and your word. It's the reason that you've called me and it's the reason you've given me wisdom. So Lord, let it bubble up out of us and let it answer the questions of the world in a way that actually brings hope and transformation in this world. And Lord, we thank you for that opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen.